hustle when you have work, not when you don't have it. And I, I thought a lot about that. It's that, you know, trying to figure out what's next because, you know, things aren't going to last forever. Um, but also, I mean, you think about this. When you have a lot of work, you have a different energy about you. It's that hustle when you have work thing that helps you remember, to, for lack of a better expression, to remember your dignity. Because sometimes people, like in the, in the interest of getting work, they will kind of shelve their dignity. And that doesn't necessarily bring you up in the minds of other people. Because if there's, they don't have work for you, it doesn't matter how you present yourself. They don't have work for you. It's how they remember you. Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. If you like what you hear on this show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.com. To continue producing the high-quality podcast you're listening to, publishing engaging newsletter content, and posting YouTube videos, we would appreciate any financial contributions you can make. At this time, we have no advertisers, and we'd like to keep it that way. Our staff is small, but growing. We can only produce a show with listener contributions from people like you. There are a couple of ways you can do that. You can sign up to be a monthly or annual subscriber at broadwaydrumming101.com. You can also contribute any amount you wish through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash broadwaydrumming101 or through Venmo at broadwaydrumming101. Or help keep us caffeinated by buying us a cup of coffee or a week's worth at buymeacoffee.com forward slash BD101. That's buymeacoffee.com forward slash BD101. We appreciate any support you can give. Don't forget to subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page. You'll find more content that isn't featured on the podcast or on the Broadway Drumming 101 Instagram page. Make sure when you subscribe to the YouTube page, you click on the button to be notified when a new video is published. Be sure to visit our new shop at merchandise.broadwaydrumming101.com. Thanks again for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My guest today in this, this, this glorious sunny day is Peter Sala. He's a drummer and percussionist who lives in New York City and has done so much over the years, which I didn't know until I looked up his bio. I was like, my goodness, you've done so much and we're going to delve deeper into everything. But welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And actually, I'm glad I give the impression that I live in New York City. I actually live in New Jersey. So I've, <laughs> I've, I've fully accomplished that my mission of making it seem like I live in the city. <laughs> Good. Fooled again. <laughs> I might as well, you know, for the amount of time I spend getting into the city. But yes. So, city adjacent. Yes, you're a city adjacent. Are you from New York City? No, I um, I moved around a little bit when I was a kid. I was born in Ohio, lived in Louisiana uh, for a few years, moved to Jersey when I was in like grade school, 
And except for a two-year detour down to North Texas for grad school, I've been in Jersey essentially the whole time. And what was it that made you say, you know what, I want, look at that, timpani right there. I want to play that. Timpani? Okay. Uh, <laughs> or oh, oh, was that the thing? That- a minute later. I can tell you the exact, <laughs> the, the thing that flipped the drum switch for me was, this will date me, the oh. Van Halen 5150 concert video and Alex Van Halen on that. Wow. And I saw, I watched that. There was a concert video live without a net. And I watched that many, many, many times. The cool thing about that is, you know, now a couple decades later, three and a half decades, a lot of years later, um, it holds up. I actually still like look at that and go, you know, that was, that was a worthy inspiration even now. I mean, some of that is, you know, probably a little bias on my part, but that was the, the original thing was Alex Van Halen. That was it for me. Alex Van Halen was your introduction and said, you know, that's kind of what I want to do. Did you want to play in a a rock band? Yeah. I mean, that's what I did. Like right off the bat, I played uh, in high school. I played with uh, a few bands and I was also in school band, um, jazz band, marching band, concert band. But then I also had my own thing. I was, it was mainly like rock and metal bands and stuff like that like learning you know learning how to do all that double bass stuff you know like um vinnie paul uh style uh with my feet but that was when i was in high school i did um as much as i possibly could and i got based off of advice from a very unlikely source which was the guy i bought my first drum set off of it was a used ludwig you know, not a great uh, instrument, but it was mine. And I coveted this thing for so, so long before I actually got it. But the guy I bought it from, he just gave me some casual information, which was just, you know, don't limit yourself to one style of music. And at that point, I didn't have a private teacher. I didn't have anybody talking to me about drums. It was kind of like my thing. And I was a little self-conscious about talking to other people about my interests because I didn't know if, you know, how far it was going to go yet. I took that as like, all right, that's worthwhile advice. And I didn't know why I shouldn't follow that advice. And it seemed, and I loved a lot of styles of music. So it seemed to be consistent with what I probably already would have done anyway. And it just kind of was an external confirmation of like, do a lot of stuff, do as much as you can. Cause it, you know, it's still playing. Did you have long hair back then? Longer, longer. <laughs> and what was uh, it? I'm, I'm- I'm curious, what was the name of your your rock band, or did you have several? My first band uh, has a typically uh, humorous slash cringeworthy name. My first band was called Mystery Meat, Um, right? And I was in that for about a year, and then I was in another band uh, for a few years, including my brother was the bass player in that band uh, called Blackened. We named ourselves after the Metallica song. Oh, uh, wow. And... Those years, like, okay, so I said I was in the school band and whatnot, but with those bands, I was with some people who were, you know, let's put it, let's put it this way, some bad seeds. And so this is what gave me kind of, you know, you know, like there's like, there's examples in life you can follow. Like, I want to be like that person, but there's just as much, there are examples you go like, I don't want to be like that other person. Um, and th- there were some decent musicians I played with, but like, man, these were some bad kids. <laughs> like, um, and it, it, 
it gave me a, like a calibration test of like, you know, who I like, what type of music, what, what environment do I want to be in? I always liked the social aspect of music, but this was like, I don't want to get arrested, you know, yeah. like that. Yeah. Like it was like in that turf uh, sort of thing, you know, I, I don't want to get too much more in de- I mean, I could name names, but I'm not going to. Uh, no, uh, we, don't, we don't know what the statute of limitations is. So. No, but I'll tell you what my, my former lead guitarist was on the national news for trying to break somebody out of jail once. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. For, yeah. And he got du- caught for the dumbest reason you can possibly imagine. It's just, it tickles me to no end that I just got out of that environment well ahead of that. Um, cause otherwise I would have been like hanging out with him still doing like, you know, you know, nightclub stuff. Uh, Thanks. Well, you are safe in the pits. Quite, quite <laughs> safe, safe and shielded, you know, respectable. Yes. No one, we don't start fights down there. And, you know, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, now I'm afraid of you, man. I might see you somewhere. Oh my Lord. No, you gotta have like brass knuckles. What's up, Clayton? What? What? <laughs> Well, you know, based based off of the conversation we had before we started recording, you know, I could teach you some street language as well. <laughs> so there's a dark side to Peter here, so people don't know. Yeah, I, I, I suppress. Yeah. I push it down, Clayton. Oh, man. So that's funny. Blackened. Yeah. And, and ladies and gentlemen, welcome. <laughs> Mystery meat. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if we would. I don't know if that band was ever going to be introduced with the term "ladies and gentlemen." <laughs> don't think so. You grew up in New Jersey. You're playing in different bands, and did you want to go to college after high school for music? And what was your plan? I didn't have a heck of a lot of steering, you know, externally. So it was. M- my I, plan, sorry, what? Huh? <laughs> what now? Um, there, like when I was in high school, it was, you know, like I, I was saying, like, you know, I'm on my dad's side, I'm first generation. My dad has two masters and a PhD, but it's all like engineering stuff. Um, and so I originally went to college pursuing a chemistry major. Um, my first couple of years of school, I worked at like a, I worked at a liquor store while I was like just taking care of core requirements at a community college. I li- like I just didn't I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do academically, so I didn't want to waste money pursuing a major. I knew I wanted to go to college just because I didn't know what other path was going to be a good at least next step for me, um, and so I went to. Uh, I, you know, I was working, you know, 20 hours a week or something like that. Being a student, I did drum corps for a few years, uh, drum bugle corps for three summers, actually. Um, and, and during that time I was thinking, okay, I'll transfer to Rutgers. I'll do a chemistry major. I guess I had no real interest in it. And then when, uh, I got to Rutgers, I, I ended up finding out that I could take some music theory classes just as an elective. And while I was like either sleeping through or sleeping past my chem lectures, uh, I was putting a lot of time into this one music theory class. And so I just realized, you know, okay, I should probably just 
follow that, follow where my interests and my efforts were pointing at that point. And so I went in that direction and uh, originally did a BA in music, which is a non uh, it's 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 not a very intense degree on the surface value, but I turned it into something intense um, because at the at that point the Rutgers Percussion Studio wasn't as developed as it became afterwards, and so I was able to get lessons with a really great teacher, um, and then I completed the BA and then auditioned for a BM. So I actually have two bachelor's degrees um, uh, in music. Uh, and that's, and this, the second one is where, where I got serious, uh, in terms of like really trying to make a go of things. Did you want to work in symphonies theater? I didn't know anything about theater back then. The people in the percussion studio, I mean, I'm friends with a number of them still, uh, you know, people drift apart. You know, I graduated college 20 years ago, geez, almost 20 years ago. Um, but the people I went to college with were pretty narrow and they're very smart people, good musicians in their own right, but they're pretty narrowly interested in like, you know, the only, the only music was like West European classical art music. Right. Like, um, and so that was what I was around. So I was, uh, I, I had put my drum set playing my drumming aside when I went to go to college because I, I thought like, well, I got to figure out this percussion thing. Um, I, I was made aware of, of what else could be out there from my time in drum corps. I was in the pit percussion section for Jersey surf and the crossman. This was like the late nineties. So this, you know, like decent, you know, crossman especially was a, a pretty decent group at that time. My main interest at that point was kind of like chamber music. I really liked percussion ensemble uh, like quartet, like I got exposed to that, I guess at a, at a moment when my interests and my energies, uh, were ripe and all I just had to find was something I enjoyed and was mildly good at and felt like I could get better at. And so that was percussion ensemble. So that turned into me being part of, it's mostly in the rearview mirror now. Um, but, part of the exit nine percussion group, which we played together for about 20 years between four and 500 shows we played. People that don't know the New Jersey turnpike. Yeah. Has- that's the Rutgers exit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's obviously that's what you named the, uh, you named the group or you, you joined uh, girlfriend of one of the founding members named it. Hmm. Uh, and we, as soon as we heard it, we're like, that, that's the name. That's what yeah. it is. No argument, no discussion. That's what we're called. It's a little better than mystery meat, but, uh, <laughs> I think a chamber group called mystery meat could actually make some inroads in, you know, like, you know, f- build some bridges. Yes. And, and you guys can play like Van Halen, you know, Van Halen. I think uh, that that band was like bad religion and like punk and stuff like that. That's, that's what we did back then. And Ooh. red hot chili peppers covers stuff like that. Yes. Awful, awful original songs. Really? <laughs> yeah. I can't find a, a, a CD lying around of your, your band. You guys record anything? All have been destroyed. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to find it on the internet. Be like, 
Oh, the, oh, this is the great thing about playing music in the early nineties, man. They, that, that don't exist. <laughs> uh, man. So Rutgers, did you get a master's degree? We said, uh, yes. I, I did a, uh, unusually I did like a, a BA a, and a bachelor of music at Mason Gross school of the arts there. And then I went to uh, the my my professor there, very big uh, influence in my life. Um, actually, just met up with her a couple days ago, um, uh, just to catch up. Shi uh, Iwu is her name. Fantastic marimba player and just a powerhouse musician. Um, and she had studied at the University of North Texas, and I had already known about that. Um, a couple uh, distinguished former guests of yours on this program, uh, uh, North Texas people, including a good friend of mine and of ours, Joe Horsheski, whom I went to high school with. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, a little bit of trivia. And actually, I played with him last night for the second time since high school jazz band. Last night was Radio City, uh, where I, I subbed on the, the the timpani chair last night for uh, for – Yet another guest of yours, Josh Samuels. Um, and uh, But Joe and I, uh, I was his drumline captain in <laughs> high school together. Yeah. Just a, a little bit of trivia for everybody. Joe's done quite well for himself. Uh, um, I take zero credit for that. But he had gone to North Texas. Um, and I remember hearing about it. So that had planted the seed well before I had even decided to major in music in college. But my teacher, having gone there and heard about all the people that she studied with, I just I wanted to go there. I wanted to study with Ed Sof, wanted to study with Robert Chitroma, Christopher Dean, Mark Ford. These are all, you know, within the kind of percussive academia world. They're all very well known, but also especially Ed Sof, uh, very well known beyond uh, just the academic world um, and and the classical kind of concert percussion world did you know sean mcdaniel or was he already i had i had heard of sean sean came through before uh he was gone by the time i got there i think by a year or two uh and i was only there for grad school for two years um okay i'm pretty i think sean had done sean and joe had both done undergrad there and i was there i actually did a, a fellowship so i was also like teaching lessons i was teaching uh if i was a little bit older because of the way they do their lessons there, I may have been teaching Sean mallet lessons because they require all the jazz studies majors to still take a certain degree of, of mallet lessons just to, just to establish proficiency base level proficiency on everything. You know, I didn't go to college for music. I went and studied business and I was always in the marching band and I never got a chance to actually study percussion mm. and the one time I had to actually use mallets was when I was subbing for Jared Shonick at the second mm. color purple and there was a uh, marimba part there was only five notes and I was sweating bullets every time that part would come up because mm. you know you're playing in a pit sometimes you, you have to choreography you have to play the drum set sometimes you have to play this over yeah. here and that over there the marimba part was to the right, so I put my stick down and played. Ding, 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 ding. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh my god, I just gotta memorize this because I don't know where it is." And it's just, you know, being proficient at something. It takes a, a long time to learn certain instruments and do them well. 
And mm-hmm. I, I admire people that play no uh, instruments that require, you know, musical notation or notes because it's, I guess it's, I guess it, people probably admire drum set players. Like how do you get all four limbs going at the same time? Yeah. And, people so. say the same thing about four mallet playing. Like how do you, how do you get them all? Well, it's the same. Everything has, first of all, if you're curious enough about it, you'll spend the time to figure it out. And mm. second of all, everything's got steps. And, you, you know, you take your first step, and then when you're ready, you take your second step. And everything, you know, some people go through those steps quicker, but everything is, you know, uh, just a matter of progression. Um, but that that's interesting you use the word choreography. You know, like every um, percussion book, that I've played and or combined book drum percussion book. Uh, there is the choreography that has to be planned, practiced, um, and internalized, uh, in order for you to feel comfortable because there's that panic. I'm sure you've experienced this even with just like a, a stick to brush change, uh, where you're not sure which hand is going First, which side are you stashing the things on? Are you hanging the brushes? Are they on a tray? Are they on the kick drum? Wherever, like, you need to have a plan and all that air traffic needs to be mapped out so that you know what's going around. And I remember a a huge memory, and I think about this all the time. Uh, When I was going in to sub for Josh Samuels at Beetlejuice, um, a a week before, he had me in because he wanted to just – check to see you know he wanted to see me play a couple of things very very reasonable um and you're another former guest of yours josh priest uh was covering uh shannon's leave of absence at the time so josh came in like they just wanted to hear me for like, like five ten minutes and they, they picked a couple numbers out of beetlejuice and it said oh i just want to hear you play this and this fine and it was weird, like like I've been used to playing along with the conductor camera or recording something like that. But I'm like, all right, I know the music well enough. I can um, I can fill in the blanks in my mind. And so we played through it. And I'm like, you know, it's a week before my first show, something like that. I hit a couple wrong notes and like, oh, like, you know, this timing wasn't quite right. I'm like, well, I got another week. I know I can do I know I I know I can fix this, but I don't know what they're going to think about that little misgiving and or mistake. And so I stopped and I played through and, and cause I think this is the first time, like Josh and I had been friends for a while, but I think he had never heard me play like a percussion percussion book. He actually subbed for me on, on Yiddish Fiddler for a minute. Um, so, but that's a very different animal from Beetlejuice in terms of like the, the intricacy and the choreography, but the, here's, I'll get to, to make a long story slightly longer the um the 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 comment he said to me right after i played i'll never forget this because i was waiting for some kind of like minute correction this needs to be there and he, and no he he just said to me he's like your movement looks good because it's a 360 degree environment multiple vertical levels foot pedals all this stuff and you have to reach across the room and, and, and play a triangle role with your left hand while you're playing this, while you're tuning timpani with your foot. Like it's, it's heavily, heavily, it's just, that's a crazy book. Like 
I would love to put Josh in or anybody in an MRI while they're playing that book just to see what's going on in their brain. But he just said, no, your, your movement looks good. In other words, he saw that my weight was shifting in the right direction. He saw that my arm was reaching for this thing. And the right note, yes, the right note will happen. The right rhythm will be tweaked. But you know where you're going. And so that flustered nature that can sometimes happen if you don't know what you're doing uh, wasn't present. And so I felt like that was like a good sign. I I was able to demonstrate like I knew the dance uh, of the book. I learned the dance. Speaking of uh, getting your movement right and and progress, you left University of North Texas and you decided to move back to the Northeast. Yes. Why not L.A. or Nashville or San Francisco? I knew what I was getting back into. I knew I could at least uh, – so my that percussion group, um, uh, it just so happened that the person who took my place in the Exit 9 percussion group – actually, have you talked to Grant Braddock? Not yet. He's okay. working on that. Okay. So Grant and I basically switched places. He took my place in Exit 9 for a couple of years. And then when I came back out, he was like, I think moving, he was like moving to South Africa for a minute or something. Like he, you'll have to talk to him to, to get clarity on the, on what he, but he had a very interesting, you know, set of projects going on from what I remember. But I knew at least I was going to have, you know, like I mentioned, four to 500 shows. That was like in the heyday of that. And so I knew I would have some work coming back up to New Jersey. And I knew I could also get a lot of work as a dance accompanist, which has been a big part of what I do. At the time, it was at Rutgers. And later, it moved into some of the conservatories and professional training programs in New York City. But that was like, that was a bed of work that I could rely on right out of grad school. I, it was, I didn't have necessarily any theater, actually not even necessary. I don't even need to qualify that. I had no theater plans at that point. Uh, I, it was not on my radar yet. And that didn't happen until five years later. Uh, so I got a late, I, I kind of mentioned this in one of our, a little bit of our earlier correspondence, but I got kind of a late start into the, the Broadway and, and, and musical theater world uh for, compared to the people i see now who like know that that's you know much earlier on know that that's what they want to focus um in i don't know if that's for me i don't know if that was a bad thing it kind of i feel like i have something to to refer back to a set of experiences that's not just this kind of uh, more musically to be honest, musically limiting experience that can be musical theater, right? You don't, it's not expressive in the way that we ultimately are capable of being as fully creative artists. We have to channel our creativity within these lanes, um, uh, you know, make it fit the story, make it fit the orchestration, make it fit, you know, if the ink is vague, how vague um, uh, is it, you know, how much latitude do I have? I had a, a, a lot of other musical experience that, with, the, with the dance class, with the chamber group, 
Um, and we did a lot of outreach. A lot of those four to 500 concerts were outreach. We did, you know, we went to Asia a couple times, uh, went to the West coast, uh, up and down the East coast a little bit. Um, but there was a lot of outreach, which implies, uh, also just a lot of different genres. So, um, another, uh, another guy that I was in that group, um, who you may or may not have spoken to already is Mike Ramsey. He's maybe one of the, uh, the humblest people I've ever met. And he's a fantastic musician. He's been subbing, uh, uh, Lion King for, I don't know, pro- maybe 20 years, wow. you know? something like that but he's also like he's he's subbed a bunch of other but i know he's subbing mj now and like i know this is not a show about other the the other people i've met but um but it's these are the people i think of when i when i think of like i'll I'll tell you be specific like mike and grant are the people that i think of when i go like successful humble and have a really good underpinning of musicianship that will translate well into whatever shows they play. And like that, you know, in terms of, I never really had teachers uh, that were into theater, but I did have colleagues who were really into it. And I feel like those are a couple people. Um, I mean, and a lot of the people that you've already had on the show that I've been fortunate enough to become acquainted with. And in some cases, friends with um, those are the people who kind of helped steer me in this direction. I've, cause I felt like I possessed this skill set. I wasn't sure what to do with it. Uh, you know, I had a lot, like I said earlier, like I had a, a lot of different interests and the one place where those could come to bear, but whether it's the different musical styles or working with dance, you know, being able to play for choreography, be able to read dance the way you read musical notation and, um, and be able to know where you need to add energy to fuel the dancers and, and not just to hit, you know, like, you know, hit a crash when they put their hands up, something like that. That's yes, that's also important, but other things to actually get inside the movement, but all those experiences turned into something that was appropriate for musical theater. I had a, a lot of different interests and no one, no one particular show ever touches all of them but some of them sometimes you know it emphasizes that there's a little bit more of a groove and sometimes there's a little bit more of the the expressiveness of um you know like being able to play really really dialed in timpani playing uh to help you know orchestral swells within a more expressive moment of the music like those sorts of things it's like it's hitting all these different experiences that i've had before that um i don't know it's 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 nice to have a, like a nice full toolbox that i didn't know i was building at the time that makes it uh helpful for me now you know for whatever shows i'm playing well i guess that toolbox was filled with tools from the years when you were doing things like the Bay Atlantic Symphony, the Brooklyn Metro Chamber, and the Hudson Valley Philharmonic. Yeah. And did you research? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, just, I just knew this off the top of my head. I just I could just mm. tell you the things. <laughs> <laughs> and you and you went from doing those kind of gigs to what you're doing now. Why 
are you still doing that kind of thing or did you just leave that behind in order to focus on more musical theater and, and working with dancers? Absolutely. I'm still doing it. I have a, a New Year's Eve gig with Bay Atlantic. Um, I'm playing principal there. They, they do a New Year's Eve concert every year. Um, and most often I'm on that job. Hudson Valley's not doing so, so well. That's a fantastic orchestra um, up there. Uh, in, like they rehearse in Poughkeepsie um, in that, that neighborhood. Um, I, uh, I still play with as many different groups, uh, as I possibly can. Um, I think because, you know, I, I think everybody just wants to stay sharp. And if you get into too much of an environment where you know exactly what's going to happen all the time and you're doing the same thing, that can that can get dangerous. It's the concept. I'm sure you've heard this. You know, maybe uh, you know some of the, some of the previous guests have touched on this uh, also. But the idea of show chops um, is that I can I can play this show really really well and kind of nothing else, and that terrifies me. I want to make sure that I keep the rust off of my playing as much as possible. I mean, you can't you can't remove all the rust from all of the aspects, you know, the wider the turf is that you're trying to cover, you know, stylistically, the harder it is to do that. But a couple days ago, I did a Christmas program with a, uh, Princeton Pro Music. It was all choir. It was this, this um, uh, orchestra and huge concert choir. Uh, was, you know, one of these, like, you get one rehearsal and they, they just throw a score at you and say, figure out what percussion instruments you're playing with this other guy. And we had to coordinate, like, looking at each other during the, during the rehearsal going, are you playing that triangle note? Am I playing that symbol note? Like go, like you, you can't be slow in that circumstance. And that element of not being quite, quite comfortable is it's a good idea to, I I think to experience that on a somewhat regular basis and playing dance classes with, uh, there's a, a gentleman who teaches, um, technique class, Horton tech dance technique class for the Alvin Ailey dance company who I accompany sometimes he scares the heck. He's great. His name is Milton Myers. He scares the heck out of me because he's so intense. And I, and like I'll, I'll accompany his, his dance classes at Juilliard, which is yet again, like another intense kind of, you know, quasi intimidating building to be in because like there's members of the New York Philharmonic walking through the hallway and like peering into the room when I'm playing djembe in there. And it's like, they're listening. I know I, because I've gotten text messages from friends of mine who were students at the time that he would go back and report on my playing um, to the percussion students who just happened to be on the same floor as the dance students in the building. Mm. Had nothing, like there was no other reason for him to be coming across me. So there's this environment where like, whether I'm playing for Milton Myers or I'm playing in a circumstance where I wish I just gotten that second rehearsal, it's the, like that feeling of like, are, is, is this prepared? Like you can, you can do your homework, but you're not entirely sure because you haven't done the whole thing yet. And the cool thing about musical theater is also the bad thing about musical theater in, in terms of the number of reps you get. If, if you're a sit down in a theater for a while, maybe you're doing a regional production uh, or you get an off Broadway show or, or Broadway show. 
and you and you get the onset of show chops and it, sometimes i'm just i can only speak for myself i've found that if i'm not careful i can get a false confidence out of that that doesn't translate to actually being able to produce well for whatever my next gig is going to be because every every job ends and so you have to be keeping yourself sharp for whatever the next job is i i feel relatively confident that my brain has been used for more than just playing one show at a time. And so I'll be able to like get up to speed fairly quickly for the next thing. Um, because I've never just like sat back and going, you know, I'm just going to play my one show. Josh Samuels, one of the, he, I mean, he and I are, 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 friends and colleagues. And he gave me a great piece of advice, uh, which I feel is like, you know, he and I have, you know, we, we've, we've traded professional advice to each other. And, and this is, this is a, was a great one for me is hustle when you have work, not when you don't have it. And I, I thought a lot about that. And first of all, that explained that, in part explains a lot of people's success, including his. Um, But it's that, you know, trying to figure out what's next because, you know, things aren't going to last forever. Um, But also, I mean, you think about this, when you have a lot of work, you have a different energy about you, right? Like, Hey, this is good. Like, you know, we got, I, I got a lot of stuff going on. You got a lot of stuff going on. Let's, let's make something happen you know, not right now, but eventually, as opposed to, Hey man, uh, I don't got anything going on. Like it's, it's like, no, you're still the same person. And, and what, you know, whereas one person is maybe even more available and more rested is like, let's say you're going to be like, want to become a sub. The other person is sharp. Right. And not, it, it becomes a little bit more of an even, this is my perception of it. It becomes a little bit more of an even playing field because you're like, I can help you out. You can help me out. It's a mutual thing as opposed to what ends up happening sometimes is that, and I've, I've fallen victim to this to myself as a sub, uh, is forgetting that it's not just them on the mountaintop handing down this work to you. It's that you're also being of service to them so that they can do other things. Um, that's one of the reasons you and I first talked, as a matter of fact. I remember because it had, it's something, there's something around Father's Day when you were covering uh, Avenue Q, you were doing the leave of absence. And I was just one of the subs on Joe's roster. And I happened to be available for you. I'm assuming that was a, a reason why you decided you know, like, Hey, let, you know, let's talk some other time as well. Like I, that I was of some use to you. Right. Um, yes. you know, happy to be so absolutely happy to be it and happy to have the work. And I loved playing that show. Um, but it's that hustle when you have work thing that helps you remember to, for lack of a better expression, to remember your dignity. Cause sometimes people, like in the, in the interest of getting work, they will kind of shelve their dignity. And that doesn't necessarily 
bring you up in the minds of other people. Because if there's, they don't have work for you, it doesn't matter how you present yourself. They don't have work for you. It's how they remember you then is what matters. You've talked about, and I'd just like to ask you about, about the intersection of your playing and muscular dystrophy. Hmm. Tell, tell me more about that. So I have a, a type, a form of muscular dystrophy called Charcot-Marie-Tooth type 2A. And I was diagnosed when I was five years old, something like that. And there are a lot of different types. I think there are like 50 or 60. I'm, that's probably an out of date number, but there, there are a lot of different types of muscular dystrophy. Mine affects probably the least convenient muscles for drummers and percussionists uh, uh, to be affected my hands and my feet. So it is, and it's a progressive condition that I like, uh, meaning I've, my hands used to be stronger than they are now. Now, one of the reasons I like to keep busy is because that holds my strength, right? The more I play, it's, it's, it literally, no hyperbole, no need to like adapt this in any way. It's a use it or lose it type of thing. The more I play, the more I'll be able to continue to play. That for me uh, has been a motivating factor because I feel like I can't wait uh, as much. Like, And yes, I can be practicing, but I also like to be engaged in a professional, you know, just for like, paying my mortgage, you know, like that sort of thing. Like I need to be able to uh, be active and I'd like it to coincide with continuing the, the use of my muscles. So I have like, you know, like it's the intrinsic muscles in my hands uh, are uh, less, let's say less cooperative. Um, and so all that means for me uh, is that I have to find smarter ways to do certain things. I do have certain speed limits, you know, like, you know, I'm not the aforementioned Vinnie Paul. I'm not going to be matching him, you know, uh, oh, well, he's no longer with us, but the, the, that playing, um, uh, that, that style of thing, or like, you know, the, the, the craziest marimba players, like that, that sort of stuff. Like I, you know, I, I don't, have you know muscle wise like it, the the potential is not quite as high i can work towards things and get you know build up my speed and whatnot but where uh and this is one of the cool things about theater is like when's the last time like anything in theater was physically taxing you know like how often does that come across come i mean and for that matter a lot of types of music like how often are you really physically taxed? And it's much more about your con- your sound concept, your your concept of the music. I would say the most physically taxing music I play is when I'm playing with a samba group and you have to play it, uh, batucada for 20 minutes without stopping, right? Wow. That's, you know, like, you know, there's a couple people that hire me to go play, like being in a, in a samba percussion section for parties and stuff like that. That's, you know, like probably the most demanding stuff. We're playing like club dates at a wedding, you know, where you're doing like, you know, four one hour sets uh, over the course of, of an evening or something like that. Um, 
those are the most you know closest to the physically demanding but they're still it's still not fast it's more like just play smart and you'll be able to last it's the same as anybody but i will tell you there there have been moments um one of them happened at, at beetlejuice uh actually where i really had to outthink uh my condition there the there's timpani parts so the timpani parts in that show um very very active tuning with your feet that's me using my feet um and there uh, because of the the orthotics that i have to wear i i literally my ankle is is stuck at a 90 degree angle so uh, as you might imagine tuning timpani becomes a little bit more of a physical challenge and there was one day there's this moment in like the opening number i was practicing it on the drums at, at the theater and i'm like oh no like, I don't know if I'll be able to do this. Um, and it, it just had to do with like, you know, it was like you go D A C G D A C G. Like you had to do that a couple times and it was like just the mechanics of it were really, really hard. And I was like, I had been working on that. Everything else was good, but this was like one of the remaining itchy spots that wasn't like, I just couldn't scratch that itch right there. And I remember, I remember literally I'm having this like mild crisis in the pit. Uh, you know, this was when it was over at the Winter Garden. And I remember like one of uh, the other subs like was coming into practice after me. And uh, I, I, Jesse Linden, I don't know if you've spoken with her. Um, great player. I, this was like the only time I'd ever met her. Um, and I remember I was having this moment where I'm like, God damn, I don't know if I can play the show because like literally it was a physical limitation. And this was a, this moment in the timpani was really high in the mix in that, in that part of the, the show. And I'm having this moment and I hear a knock on the door that it was her turn to come into practice. And I'm like, Oh, like, you know, I remember like thinking like, okay, make a good first impression. But like I, in, in my mind, I'm like, well, I may have found my limitation. I may have found the moment where like, I actually can't do the thing. And so I was like, wait a second. No, 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 no. Don't quit. Don't quit. Like, because what, because I do a lot of, a lot of teaching and I, I never would have, of, of let a, a student give up on that. So I'm like, all right, put your teacher hat on and teach yourself how to do this. And what I realized in that particular moment, and it's actually, it was fun. It became, it ended up becoming a joke is like, all right. In order to do this, the issue is actually this specific, like resetting the drums on this side. And I realized if if all I could do is just like stomp my foot with my heel, which you're not supposed to do with timpani. You know, you don't tune them with your heel. You tune them with your toe, right? If all I had to do is like stomp on the drum, on the pedal with my heel, um, then I would be able to do this thing. It's still like really crazy because I have to use my whole leg. and it's, it's, it's very ungraceful. It gets the job done. But if I were able to do that, I, I, you know, I, I could play this part accurately. And in order to do that, I had to, I went home and I got kitchen towels and I rolled them up and I went in, I went into the theater and like I stuck it underneath the toe of the pedal and I pushed it all the way sharp. And I was like, all right, it's still not in the right place. So I folded over the towel and I put it again. All right, getting closer. And I, and I realized if I fold this towel four times over, um, I will be able to just stomp on this thing with my heel, get the notes like on both. And I remember every time I went to the drums, I had to use a different number of folds 
like when I would when I would go and set up the you know the the pre do my whole pre show uh, ritual. Um, uh, but like as long as I could have these kitchen towels here, I would be able to play uh, this this little segment, and that was. It, and it turned into a joke because every once in a while I'd forget to take them away. And Josh would be like, why the hell are there kitchen towels under the, the, the timpani pedals? And then I explained to him, he was like, oh, okay. He, he was totally cool, but it was like random. You know, you know, people get, you walk into your, your setup and you want everything to just be the way it's supposed to be. And you're like, someone doing laundry? Like what's going on? Um, but that turned into like, it, it basically reaffirmed like there's a way to do anything. And you have to throw out what you think the right way is supposed to do and just get the job done. And especially the cool thing about theater percussion is because you're not being seen. You don't have to worry about like your presentation quite as much. It can be quite ungraceful and you just get the job done and music director is none the wiser. They have no idea that you're, you know, bringing kitchen linen into the pit to (laughs) to get stuff done. Um, but, uh, all, all kinds of things like that, like little problem solving skills that have translated into just part of the extended technique of being a percussionist, multi-percussionist, theater percussionist, that sort of thing, where the people doing the orchestrations don't care about how you have to do it anyway. So why do I have to care how I do it? I just have to do it. Hmm. Nugget. <laughs> yeah. Tell everybody about what you have to do being the in-house contractor and what does it mean being a shop steward? Uh in-house contractor and shop steward. Um so one is administrative and the other one is more of a labor or oriented like um union adjacent position. Uh in-house contractor is I affectionately think of myself as the homeroom teacher uh, for the, uh, for the orchestra. The the main jobs are just to do payroll and uh, to make sure that everybody is in their seats by the time the show's ready to start. And, uh, both at, for the act one, as well as act two, actually, uh, I got, I got some emails last night because I, although I had subbed out last night, I'm getting issues, you know, there's that show runs long. And so getting in your seats for act two is, is actually pretty crucial. And so I, I've been tasked with helping to make sure that that goes, goes through, uh, properly, uh, that goes through in a timely fashion. Um, but, uh, being an in-house, I enjoy it because I like talking to people and uh, it's not just talking to percussionists at that point. You're talking to uh, every chairholder and every sub for every chairholder on some level. But the, the in-house job is it, it's, it's kind of like HR, you know, a, a little bit of that. Uh, um, I work on an, uh, an off-Broadway show. So, uh, Broadway, this is one of the differences between Broadway and off-Broadway is that the definition of this role is a lot looser off-Broadway than it is on Broadway. Um, and uh, on Broadway, it's much more strictly what I was talking about. It's payroll and butts and seats. Um, Off-Broadway, because our show doesn't have a contractor uh, in, in the traditional sense, 
so a lot of the things that a contractor would be asked to do, I'm asked to do. Um, uh, I'm in touch with stage management a lot more. I'm in touch with production management, company management, because I have, I'm a conduit to the orchestra and they're, you know, I have the infrastructure set up to communicate certain things to them. Uh, it's just the most efficient way to get word out. And that dovetails nicely with the union steward thing, which is, um, and this is something I, I believe the, the impression I'm under is that um, every orchestra selects who's going to represent them. And uh, I, my, uh, I, I was essentially selected back uh, during our original run um, back in fall 2018, um, especially because uh, there were some contract renegotiation they needed to happen. Every time our show got extended, it was a success, but then that meant new contract, new pay rates, new terms, new everything. And so there was a lot of phone calls, uh, a, a, a lot of uh business that needed to be attended to where the the union who does the actual negotiation for the musicians needs to be aware of what the musicians need. And that contact person who helps that awareness uh, and that two-way um, communication happen is the, the, the shop steward that um, very commonly it's the same person as the in-house because uh, of that. Again, they have these existing pathways of information and relationships and, so it, it it doesn't have to be, but it tends to be. That's my understanding. Now, what I was saying about in-house is like, again, that's been my experience off Broadway. I don't want to make it seem like that's always the way it is for everybody else because I don't, I don't think it is. And uh, people often refer to off Broadway as like the Wild West. Like, so the, there's, the, this is one distinction. It's helpful to understand. There is no off Broadway standard contract. There is for Broadway. There is what what are called commercial off-Broadway area standards. And it's basically like a template that contracts can be based on. So that's why you got a lot of variety. Like we're getting into the business weeds uh, of, of New York theater, but like there's a lot of variety with uh, off-Broadway in terms of like the, the work, you know, compensation premiums, all, all that not as much the premiums, but like just the rates, like all the pay stuff is not nearly as consistent as it is on Broadway. And there's articles if you want to link to them. Uh, in the recent issue, I wrote a, an article in the recent issue of Allegro that uh, you can you can share. Uh, and also the international musician, the, the national, I guess it's international publication. I'm not sure the di distribution of that magazine, but they're also doing a separate article. It's not the same article. It's actually a different article. Um, about Yiddish Fiddler's contract negotiation and our, our union organizing efforts around this particular contract. And it has to do with how loose off-Broadway can and often is. So tell me about this switchboard percussion accessory table. What exactly is that? So this is something that was born out of just the need. We talked about earlier, we talked about dignity. You know, and that was re with respect to, you know, like what you're willing to, what, how, how you present yourself to other people in the, you know, 
arranging the work, whether, you know, whether you're willing to sub, how available you are, whether you are willing to work for this amount of pay or that amount of pay. So that's like professional dig- dignity. And then there's like the presentation dignity. And I, I had always been bothered by the whole music stand with a towel draped on it thing. I felt like, you know, yes, it's useful uh, for percussionists. You know, we just need to, to have a quiet surface to put something down on. But I also felt like it wasn't a good use of space. So the, the switchboard was something I, I worked on, and it's actually patented now. Um, it, it, it's something I worked on where I, I wanted to make better use of the space with the idea that it would be uh, to have a better application for um, – musical theater, definitely for musical theater uh, circumstances. And the, the main thing with that is the ability to better harness vertical space. So like uh, the way, the way that the, the table is designed um, it, it, it's about the same size as a music stand, but there are um, adjustable elements to it so that you can uh, hang things off of it, remove them, uh, it's, it's, it's something I, I, I should have one next to me here so I could just start pointing at things, but mm. it's basically specifically designed with, uh, musical theater in mind because we often have to have a lot of weapons and we don't have a lot of space to, to store them. Right. Our, uh, we have to have a lot of different sticks, a lot of different mallets, um, uh, let alone your, you know, your in-ears, and uh, your beverage of choice that you need to keep, you know, within hand's reach. And it was just a, basically a way where I, I thought, like, I have this handy side of me. I like building things. I like woodworking, that, that sort of stuff. Um, let me see what I can do. Um, and actually, Billy Miller ended up helping me a lot with uh, some of the the concepts, uh, like uh, materials providers, um, and just, like, talking through some of, some of the ideas um, it, it's something I have, uh, you know, the Juilliard percussion studio wants to order some from me. Uh, Josh has been using one at Beetlejuice for a few years. Um, the, it, people are, everybody who sees it, uh, and you can, you know, you can put some, put some pictures up if you like. Um, everybody who sees it goes like, Oh, that I, I see exactly why that, that, um, uh, that that thing would earn its keep in a in a multi percussion setup. Um, just you know, like it, when most of the time, one of the biggest limitations in a musical theater circumstance is space. You don't have you don't have quite as as much of it as you'd like, and so the idea was just very simply be smarter with space, and that's that's an, an operating principle with that. And it just, it's, it, it was fun to design because I got to use that, this other problem solving part of my brain that I talked about a little bit earlier with respect to my physical limitations. But this was also something where like, it makes certain like retrieving and, and stashing certain things easier for me because of my limitations, but makes it easier for everybody, which makes them quicker, more accurate, uh, it just quieter. All those things that you need to be if you if you have to have a lot of different things um, uh, being interchanged within a performance. There are certain things that are are, are quite are ubiquitous in mm-hmm. a Broadway 
pit or off railway pit. One of those is the Miller machine. What yes. should be next is the switchboard percussion accessory. Okay. That's that is ultimately the goal. As a matter of fact, uh, the switchboard was on Broadway before I was. Uh, it it got its first show uh, before I did. Um, but yeah, that that uh, and actually, Billy. This was actually a, a a funny story. Billy and I were on the phone um, because I had designed. I had actually taken my Miller machine and altered it like literally cut into the aluminum in such a way so that it would be mountable to my switchboard. And so when I use it, like you can find pictures of my, my fiddler setup, uh, my old fiddler, fiddler setup when we were at stage 42, where uh, you could just see the Miller machine. I didn't have to have a separate clamp for it. It was just mounted right to the, the switchboard. And Billy was like, actually, and we had a, like this phone conversation, like, you know, do I want to start start selling Miller machines with that alteration on? Like he entertained that for a second. And then he's like, actually, I got a better idea. And he literally on a napkin drew out a design for how to make a Miller machine adapter for the switchboard. And he took a picture of. So I actually have a picture of this napkin sketch that Billy made for me. Uh, and, and so I made it and I basically it just it's a matter of going into production. That is the switchboard itself is something that if, if people are interested in, they can go to the, the website gig with switchboard. You can see pictures of it. And if you're interested, you can get on a mailing list so that as availability starts to ramp up, uh, that can become uh, something that, uh, you know, might will be available for sale. Um, but uh, the Miller machine adapter is, is, is on that. Uh, it's, it's in the production queue somewhere. Uh, it's behind the main table though um but uh that's been uh i mean what ends up happening like if you're you enjoy what you do and you're somewhat good at it at least you end up thinking about it a lot even when you're you don't have to be thinking about it and for me that took the shape of me spending the more than one all-nighter like up like a mad scientist in my studio trying to figure out how different things would, you know, how, for example, it can like get mounted to the side of a xylophone without any drilling or adhesive or anything like that. And so if you imagine in a pit where like you have mic stands and things that need to go on the floor, that floor space is precious and you don't want to have legs. What I call is hardware spaghetti where all the legs are kind of like tangled with each other. And I figured, okay, what would be nice be able to mount it in that way. And so I designed, that's an element of the design. Um, I mean, we're getting into like really super percussion specific, but you know, this Broadway drumming, Broadway percussion. <laughs> well, Mr. Sala, I got to wrap up this conversation. Peter is the author of a percussionist handbook. You are the drummer for the Yiddish version, the Yiddish language version of Fiddler on the Roof. You are a, percussionist that has done many different things and is also one of the subs at Radio City. You are the in-house contractor, shop steward. You are author of several different articles for Local 802's Allegro magazine and international musician. I have to say it like, you know, the, the people that you have on this show are, to my mind, like just the people who have accomplished 
a, a lot of things. They have longevity, they musicianship, uh, great in, inner interpersonal presence, like like just good people in general, good musicians, good business people, um, artists uh, of 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 all different things. So just to, you know, for you to, to, to bring me in, I'm just honored to be like just having that association. So thank you for bringing me in and for giving me an opportunity to, you know, talk a little bit about my, just my little experience within this world. Well, I'm glad you can be a part of it. I really enjoy your, your, your wisdom and your thought process and just everything that you brought to the table. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Clayton. All right, we will talk soon, and hopefully I'll see you on the Broadway campus. If not on the Broadway campus, then on the cart of the Radio yes. City. Awesome. <laughs> <It's> spectacular. Sounds <laughs> good. All right, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Clayton. Thanks. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Thank you again for joining us. If you'd like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to give us a nice rating and review. Stay tuned for more.